0: Hi, you're listening to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast. My name is Dave Kellogg, and my co-host is Thomas Otter. Our guest here today is Dan Faulkner uh, of Plana, if I've pronounced it correctly with the p- appropriate Boston accent. Uh, and today we'll be talking about building great product teams. The room is being recorded. Hey, Dan. Good morning. Hey, Dave. Good morning. morning, morning Dan. So tell well, us how with the correct pronunciation of Plana and 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 why you guys picked the name. I think I know, but it's it's a good uh, story.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, you did uh, pronounce it correctly. Um, and yes, we're a Boston-based company, and um, the CEO and founder, Peter Mahoney, um, is born and bred in Boston, and uh, he he thought it was cute, and um, he will tell you that his wife absolutely did not and thought it was a terrible name, and so he's spent the last few years trying to make the company successful, I think, is try and prove a point. (laughs)
0: It's always good to have strong personal motivation for a startup. Exactly. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, The room is being recorded because we released this as a podcast. Um, We're going to have a a growing audience, and hopefully we'll get some questions from them uh, towards the end. But let me jump in I'm gonna be on point today as the lead interviewer. Thomas is always free to uh to weigh in whenever he wants as, and I usually do yep. and he usually does like that um, so uh, let's jump in just get to know you a little bit Dan uh first what want to tell us about you and your background and how you ended up in a product leadership role
1: sure so um I all, all the way back to university um i um, I was doing my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in kind of the early to mid 90s. And I was very interested in speech and language technology. Um, and I was fortunate enough to find one of the few places then that was actually offering postgraduate courses in, in speech and language processing. That was the University of Edinburgh. Um, and I was even more fortunate when I left to find a company in the UK that actually wanted to build some. So I I was, I started out straight out of college doing um, kind of AI research in all speech tech. I was primarily focused on an area called text to speech synthesis. So getting computers to talk, the voice of Alexa, that kind of thing. Although I did not make the voice of Alexa, but um, it's that, that technology. Um, And Uh, Then I was uh, hired by an MIT spin-out called uh, SpeechWorks to carry on that kind of work. Um, SpeechWorks was acquired by a company that um, actually has just recently been sold to Microsoft for a large amount of money called Nuance Communications. Uh, I ran um, the research for text to speech synthesis at Nuance for some time and then I actually became very interested in why people were actually buying this technology we were building and why they paid for it and why they paid what they did pay for it. So I started to get very interested in product management and moved into that, uh, RAM product management for one of Nuance's business lines for a few years and eventually ended up actually in operational management, general management roles, running a couple of lines of business in the mobile uh, division at Nuance. Um, And uh, after a while, uh, when the company had swelled from 600 to four. 14,000 people, I decided I wanted to change and became um, Peter's employee number one at a startup called Planner as the CTO. I decided I wanted to return to a uh, a more uh, purely technically focused role, um, and I wanted to change, and it couldn't have been a much bigger change. I joined pre-revenue, um, and uh, we have since then you know, launched our product, generated our first million of ARR, which we're delighted about. Um, and are building up um, a product team with some folks here in the U.S. and some folks um, offshore.
0: So before we jump into to a little bit on plan, uh, uh, let me ask uh, one or two questions more about you. Um, so as you made this transition from, and I love the way you said it, from research, you got curious as to why people you know paid for this. <laughs> what surprised you on that journey as you went from kind of pure researcher into kind of product leader and business unit leader? Well, were there any kind of big like wow moments on that on that journey where you were just truly surprised by what you learned?
1: Um, I well, I was fascinated by. The um, the logic behind pricing, I uh, and I think that that's still an incredible art, um, as well as obviously a science. But really, trying to understand the end value that your product is delivering, uh, and and being able to figure out how much of that value you're really responsible for. Um, so so that arena, I. Um, discovered as well, I kind of have a passion for the the different cadences of product management. There's really, you've got to sort of be looking at the long-term, the mid-term, the short-term and sort of oscillating between those three, um, uh, w- which I really loved. I think the surprise for me, maybe more tactical surprise for me, was sometimes the, I was surprised at the lack of a real story behind some of the product strategies that I saw. Maybe you you might call it a strategy, but I was surprised the number of product managers who I spoke to and said, well, why are we we doing this? Why are these the most important things for us to build? And depressingly frequently, the answer was, well, because sales asked us to or because competitor A has it. And um, that was something that I kind of, I think I spotted fairly early in the move into product management as something I wanted to avoid. I always wanted to be able to really explain why we were doing what we're doing uh, in a way that was simple and, and kind of made sense from the development team all the way out to the to the customer.
0: Interesting yeah, what, what of, uh, at the risk of being redundant, what, one of my uh, pet peeves in product management I, I call it occupational hazard is becoming kind of incrementalist and you just become a list manager and you're managing all these lists you, you know you know what everyone wants is the good news because you, you have 10 lists representing each constituency but the bad news is you kind of just chip away at each one without any underlying strategy and, and I've seen that yeah. to quote you depressingly frequently as well um, <laughs> and it's, it's something that really should be avoided. Um, Thomas, are you okay? Was that uh, I thought it was, was going to scream, man down. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that noise came from you. That oh, noise
2: came from me. I thought I was on mute. I managed to drop a book. but. Hi.
0: Uh, yeah. right. Sorry. Uh, I hope it wasn't you collapsing or anything. I was like, Thomas?
2: No, <laughs> no, <laughs> so, no, no, no collapsing.
0: Yep. <laughs> Excellent. Good to hear. Um, the, uh, so, let's talk, so tell us a bit about Plato. Uh, so we talked about the name, but what does Plana do and, and, and why do people buy Plana?
1: Yeah, Pl- planners. Um, uh, it's a SaaS application, um, and it's we built it to help marketers. Um, and you know, the, forgive the pithy slogan, but to, to help marketers prove and improve the value of their marketing. Um, and so, what we mean by that is to really get at. Um, and Dave, I'm going to steal the term you used the other day because I really liked it. We we we. Um, Our goal is to help marketers get at the return on marketing in an actual specific financial quantifiable number so that they can say, I spent $100,000 on this campaign and I generated $400,000 worth of value and I can show you how that is. And uh, it's kind of been the holy grail of marketing for a while. And there's an awful lot of sort of tap dancing around it um, that you can see in the way that um, marketing functions often report their metrics and we're trying to just really simplify it to this much money went in this much money came out in terms of business value and make that super simple for marketing teams to do um and and so we are seeing our most successful customers being able to do that and and usually being able to do that for the first time in, in a way that that also saves them a lot of time
0: so you, uh, you touched on this earlier, but I, I want to drill into it a teeny bit more. So, so you had the big, let me call it, cushy job at, at the billion-dollar nuance, um, and then you jumped into a pre-revenue startup. Can you, can you remind us a little more detail on why why you did that? This will be crazy move. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, it's hard to project back into the, into the exact mindset. Obviously, a big part of it was not knowing what I was signing up for, um, yeah. but Uh, I think you'd find that is often the case with people who who begin very early at startups. And, and of course, especially those people who found startups, which which I have not done. Um, uh, I really love tackling new problems, and I tend to be a fairly holistic thinker. And I flattered myself um, that I had... um, Gained enough experience over the time at Nuance. I was very fortunate to be able to kind of move laterally and just get lots of different um, uh, touch points and experiences of international business, different business models, all sorts of different technical uh, exposure. Um, And I felt like I I should be able to apply that to something brand new. Um, I felt very comfortable joining Planner because I I had known Peter for a long time and worked with him and, and deeply trust him um and i really felt like there was a big market there i think um uh i learned more in the last three years than i had in in the previous six uh and i'm sure that's also something that people who've moved from larger organizations into startups probably find as well
0: so um interesting thomas before we switch off Plana and dan's background did you want to have any questions because i'm going to switch into uh, product teams
2: I think I think the product team thing I'm, I'm i've got a whole bunch of questions on that so we'll, we'll uh, uh, you fire away and i'll chip in then
0: we'll we'll jump in okay good well thanks for the intro to you and to planet um, let's talk about great product teams um, let me just start with a high level question first what what makes a great product team in your mind how, how do you know when you have one how do you know when you don't
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so the obviously there are you know there, there's very obvious things like, you know, talented individuals. But the characteristics of a good product team, um, uh, I mentioned earlier the importance. I've always felt it's extremely important to understand the simple story. Um, And for me, uh, you don't create products in a vacuum. You create them within a context. And the context has many different um, facets, the type of company you're in, the type of product you're trying to build, your target market, um, literally, obviously, the technical elements doesn't require a high degree of innovation um, and i I start there and you, you you need to think about if I could configure a team on a blank sheet of paper what would it look like um, and then try and optimize the team towards that and I would say therefore what you what what you need at the core is individuals who obviously are technically adept or if are on the product management side are extremely adept to, um in the functional skills but they also need to have the attributes of embracing change being highly resilient being highly adaptable um and um it's it's kind of a mantra that i have always um talked about when i interview and when i have people in my teams who are interviewing is i really try and seek out people who are high energy and low ego um high energy meaning they're committed to what we're doing low ego meaning they're not going to mind if you say hey can can we shift your role description a bit because this is the thing we really need now um and and not feel like you know that they always need to be working on the thing that individually interests them the most Um, so as that rather long answer probably said
0: it's complex so what um two follow-up questions on that one that the first would be interestingly and it was this conscious or subconscious you didn't the, you you didn't give the almost tautological, tautological answer which is they build a great product um so i'm curious why why you chose to either what did you deliberately not put that as an output or or like because that would be my first order answer it might be like how do i know i have a great product team they built a great product but is that is that too simple i'd love your uh, thoughts on that
1: um yeah it's it's it's, it's the evidence that you you've, yeah. you've You've got a great product team, sure, and uh, yes, I guess it, it seems a little tautological to me, um, yeah. but um, the uh, yes, of course, you end up with, with a great product, but you can only do that with those other elements, I think, that, that, I, that I talked about.
0: Understood. Well, um, have you seen it, and, and I don't want to name names or anything in terms of companies or, or experiences, but have you seen a bad one? And how do you know if it's not going well? <laughs> so we're going to spend a lot of time on building great ones, but when it's not a great one, what are some of the signs and symptoms and what goes wrong? I,
1: I actually think being not great um, is um, probably rather more common than being great. Yeah. Um, the... That doesn't mean they're terrible um, but um, so I think i've seen I've seen few really great ones and I've seen few really terrible ones because there's always enough sort of governance and smart people and you know the, they, they don't survive um, but I think um, there are sort of key relationships when I think of a product team I always think of the combination of product management and the development team so I'm not just talking about developers and of course if you're in an area that needs research, I also include. R&D in in that whole product team family. Um, And uh, so what you need is extremely tight alignment between the product manager and the uh, engineering manager. Um, And whether that's a VP or a director or a manager, it doesn't matter, a team lead, it doesn't matter. Um, They need to really see, have the same vision, have a common understanding of what it is they're building and why. Um, and it's really incredibly important for all the people who are involved in the development team to understand why they're building what they're building, um, because uh, all the best product teams I've had, people are extremely motivated in seeing the value that they're delivering, and if, if that's not clear to them, um, all, all sorts of things go wrong that we can we can talk about, um, we can talk about at more length. Um, so it, it really starts with uh, the leadership, uh, obviously fantastic communication i personally am less hung up on whether people are doing agile or waterfall i just don't think the process rises that far to the top of what makes a great product team um but uh it's that common sense of purpose and a deeply understood purpose of the product and it's and it's and its direction is the starting point
0: on process, I'm going to take the bait on this one um, <laughs> because it's a relatively unusual viewpoint, in my opinion. Um, and not to say it's right or wrong, but but my take on process would have been this: that that the reason I think having a great process is a sign of a great team is because it drives so many other good habits. You know, you know what I mean? Like if you, if you can release software, if you build a process where you can release software continuously that's automatically tested, yada yada, at any time there's a whole bunch of underlying things you're doing right. So, so uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? Because to me, I, I would include everything you said I agree with, but I actually would put process at the top and I wanted to explore why you don't or how you think about it.
1: Yeah, so there's two I mean, there's two different processes. We may be talking about different ones, so I should probably have been clearer. Um, 100%, your release management, CD, testing, QA, 100%. That's got to be... Fabulous, rock solid, um, and and I think if you have someone who's great, like a role that I think has just grown and grown and grown in importance, particularly if you're doing uh, stuff in the cloud, which we are at Planner, is the role of DevOps and the efficiencies, the security, the quality that a great DevOps person can bring into your product uh, deployment um, and and uh, CI CD process is is just incredible. So that we are totally aligned on the process where I feel like it's okay to have more flexibility, and where in fact the process you might you might adopt depends somewhat on the the rest of the context in which you're developing the product is actually on the um you know whether you do on how you manage the feature roadmap whether you plan out your your cycles in two week or three week sprints and whether some you're ever flexible about those or whether you say no come what may it must be three weeks I have found that you actually benefit as a team if you can be a little bit adaptable on that front end of the of the product process
0: understood okay I'm glad I asked that that was a good answer but by the way just a, another editorial comment but I totally agree with everything you said on DevOps, and it actually took me a while because I've been out of technical stuff, right? I started technical and moved to marketing, but the DevOps is an effect, you know, the revenge of configuration management, right? The thing yes. we used to have back in the day, and they've gone from being a very kind of staffy, unrespected role to being an absolutely critical role, so so, so good for them because I agree with you on the release process, um, all that stuff is super important, and I've worked at companies where it's not automated, right? And they, and they, and they don't do CICD, and they can't release software after every sprint, and um that that's it's just not good no
2: so good, good. D- Dave I'll, I'll chip in finally and uh Please. yeah um there's something Dan that's been been on Dan and Dave actually it's been on my mind this this last week um and it's focus on the definition of done um you know if if there's a product team and as an organization you're very clear about what defines done then a lot of these things fall into place so the 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 um you know, the discussion we've just been having about DevOps. Um, the reason why this came up for me this, this week is I was, I was speaking to a vendor that's growing really fast. You know, they've gone from, uh, you know, they, at that point where they've gone going from sort of a hundred employees to, you know, several hundred employees. And there's this, you know, start of a disconnect between, between the sales organization and the product organization in terms of roadmaps and what the product does and so on. And, you know, one of the things I said to this client was you need to start thinking about including the, the demo system into your definition of done. Because if you if you don't if you can't actually show the product um when you finish building it, then there's not much point in building it. And um you sort of took that away and almost thought about you we you kinda of got the sales ops function that links into that 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 actually enables not only DevOps. You think about DevOps enabling customers. You think about well, how do you actually enable the 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 the, the sales organization to sell your uh, to sell your product? Because if you're a product manager at the end of the day, going back to what what uh, measures success, it's you know do people buy your stuff? So so thoughts about about definition of done and what you think should be. Um, in that, perhaps at different stages of a software company, maybe in a startup, how do you think about definition of done? And then, when you're in a bigger software company, how do you think about definition of done?
1: Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, and I'm, there's definitely an, a presumed B two B context here. Yeah. Um, uh, from based on my because that's my experience, um, the yeah the, the product has to be bought, and it can only be bought if it can be used so uh there is there really isn't a definition of done unless you're delivering something that can be that can be used now if you are very early and if you have um you know as and by the way pl- planner is still pretty early um so we go on 3 week sprints and we're done when it passes our testing and we can get it into production and customers can start using it and um that getting directly into the customer's hand is is our definition of done. Um, if you were in a longer sales cycle, more consultative sales cycle, um, then uh, where there's a longer evaluation period, or there's team selling, which is very much the case um, at Nuance, you could have sales cycles that lasted oh, well over a year. Um, if you're selling a complex system into you know into a into a telco. Um, Done can mean something different, but it at least means demonstrable. Um, you, you have to have, and not just demonstrable, but a high-fidelity demo that really reflects what the, the user experience is going to be. Um, and so in those instances, yeah, product management may need to engage more with product marketing, with sales engineering, and and really deeply understand that there's this intermediate deliverable that's not the finished product, but it's the vehicle that the sales team is going to use to to finally sell, ultimately sell the finished product. And that could be a demo application, um, in our instance, where we're doing speech and language technology that just demonstrates that it's robust, that it, that it really understands what you say under different audio conditions. Um, it's not obviously the application that that customer is going to end up buying. Does that make sense, Thomas? Yep, it
2: makes
0: sense. Super. Um, so Dan, you have a four part framework for thinking about product teams. Uh, Could you introduce us to that? Yeah, I,
1: I, and I do this kind of, um, periodically. So, so nothing stays the same. Um, obviously the markets change, organizations change, product teams need to change as well. And it's something that, um, I, so I, I, never view things as being set. Um, from a from a team perspective. So I think about context. It's something I've mentioned already. Um, and I think we'll probably dive into that in a bit more detail, Dave. So but it, at a high level, that just means what is the world context, company context, market context in which we are developing this product? Um, I think about the talent I have. Um, and so that's the, you know, you go to war with the army you have, it may not be the army you want all the time. Um, so what are you going to do about it? Um, I think very carefully about the changes that I'm going to be making. Uh, that, that's, so first is context, second is talent, third is change. Um, uh, I do not shy away from change. I think it needs to be a continuous thing. It just needs to be carefully managed, risk assessed. You need to pick the right things to change and don't change capriciously. Um, and then you think about physical lo- location. Where Where are people and where do they need to be? So,
0: that, so, that's are four I think. Let me, let me drill into <clears throat> one aspect of that here. The, the army, I, I like this quote the army you have versus the army you want. So, so are you saying basically, you, I, I think what I heard there was I need to look at the capabilities of the army I have. That, that if I have an army that can capable of doing thing X, but maybe they're not capable of doing thing Y, say re architecting the whole product, right? Is this is to say adding incremental features versus re architecting it. Um, you're saying product strategy should be a function of the army I have, presumably. But is, is that what you're saying? I just want to make sure I got it.
1: Um, no, I, I, think, I think the so product strategy is inevitably going to be somewhat influenced by the army that you have. But I think really your product strategy should be superordinate. And if the army you have is not the army you need, it's incumbent on you to start to modify the army you have so that it becomes the army you need.
0: Got it. But what, what I would take from that, because I've been in situations where, where there's a big gap between the army I have and the army I need, um, and, and I think what I'm hearing is, I'll just take a concrete example. I've got a, an okay development team that's good at adding incremental features, but the architecture is running out of gas. It needs to be re-architected Basically, step one in the rearchitecture of me would be get the army you need, and then start rearchitecting. Right. Um, so, so, in some ways, in the short term, it does influence my choice of product strategy. I'd say, hey, guys, keep going adding incremental features. Oh, and hey, VP of engineering, we need to overhaul, <laughs> we need to overhaul the org. Is that roughly the, the spirit of it? Um, yeah, that, yeah,
1: that's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly the spirit of it. Because
0: um, it basically don't ask people to do things beyond their capabilities. I'm trying to figure out why that made the list of four. Because it's it, most people don't talk about it, which is why I'm drilling in. Um, so, so, how did that come to be on your list of four things to think about?
1: Uh, because I um, and I would really love to hear your guys' experiences of this as well. Um, people's assessment of their strengths and weaknesses is not always, you know, congruent with with reality. And by the way, I'm sure that sometimes applied to me. Um, so, uh, you, people may strive very hard and have got themselves into a role where it's like, Hey, I'm driving innovation and that that, that may not be the right place for them. Or they might be in, um, uh, they might have a, a, a ton of experience in, um, uh, you know, Python development and they decide that they want to just ditch that and shift into, um, doing front end stuff when you really need them at that moment to stay in their wheelhouse um so it's that kind of change and it's also looking at the combined capabilities of the team so there's an individual one does your view of where you're best suited match where we think the team really needs you to be uh where you would be best suited The second is, as a team, do we have all the bases covered, right, for the type of product we're building in the context that we're in? Do I need someone who is um, uh, hugely innovative? Are we actually in a late-stage product where it's really all about driving efficiency and we're going to manage this thing for uh, profit? Um, Those require different people, different sets of people, um, different – Complements of skill sets, and you need to optimize the, the 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 all the people in the team towards the the context of the product that you're developing.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's the reason it's resonating so much for me is is I have a similar principle. It's not quite the same uh, on strategy, but I call it the strategy compiler, which is a lot of times companies build great strategies that they couldn't possibly execute. Yes, and it's like, well, that's a great strategy, for another company, you know, <laughs> but yes. for this company, one of the constraints needs to be we're capable of executing it. And I think if I take your principle, it basically says. It, it basically match the people on the team to the situation. So I, I thought a great example, don't put all your high innovation guys in a mature product line that the business strategy is to maximize EBITDA, right? If they're the wrong people for that job. They're going to go insane and quit, right? And, and, and conversely, don't do not do the opposite, right? Put the, the kind of stewards and caretakers on the, on the brand new thing because it's not going to work. So I just think it's incredibly important because I think people often – I've seen lots of companies, particularly in R&D, sign up for major re-architectures, major new innovation with, with just literally the wrong people who don't have a chance <laughs> at being nice. successful. And oh, it was a great idea, but not for us.
2: Yeah, I jump in here. I think, I think you know that's happening a lot with machine learning at the moment. Um, you know, Building products without machine learning is very different than building products with machine learning. And the problem I think that we have is we have a lot of the the product management processes and the uh, and the uh, processes around building machine learning heavy products are not actually evolved yet, and and so a lot of the assumptions around machine learning are made by people that don't know a whole lot about machine learning, and and we're in a situation where you know a lot of the a lot of the promises of of, of machine learning and AI are not are not being. Uh, you know not being delivered, and so we have this expectation from you know the market and so on that's AI this ML that or whatever. But actually, when you look in organizations and you start saying, Well, who actually really knows anything about AI ML, the numbers are actually really quite thin.
1: I completely agree with that, and it's exacerbated, Thomas, by the fact that um, previously complex machine learning processes and pipelines have been abstracted away extremely effectively. Um, so, you know. You've got a little bit of Python and access to Scikit Learn, you can go and build a neural net and that might look great on your on your marketing slideware. But unless you've got someone who really knows how to whether you've done that training properly, whether you had adequate data, adequate data coverage, what parameters should be optimized, you're shooting in the dark a bit. Um yep. and so I, I think the there's the need for people who deeply understand data. Is distinct from the people who know how to build ML models,
2: and I think that's a really important problem at the moment. I think is because products are becoming products are becoming more data centric, um, and product managers, you know, often don't have you know data awareness. They have you know function feature awareness, but actually understanding understanding data is is a different uh, is a different skill set. Absolutely. So
0: um,
2: the next part of
0: your framework I wanted to drill into uh, was change. I I know you have views on change and how to manage change in these organizations. Uh, Can can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah. um, I I think that uh, knowing there's an issue and – or even that there may be an issue, an impending issue, and choosing not to address it – has never worked for me <laughs> i don't I, I don't think it i mean it doesn't work in your personal life right if you know you're developing bad habits you can choose to ignore them but eventually it will, it will catch up with you um and the same applies here if, if you can see that there's a gap if you can see that someone's struggling if you can see that you're heading off in the right direction or the team structure isn't right um uh, embrace that change and and um Make the change as soon as you responsibly can. I think that's the key thing because saying that that changing quickly um, does not mean changing thoughtlessly. You, you should absolutely take the time to to think through the consequences of changes you make, uh, whether they're to your strategy, whether they're to, they're to your team, um, to your roadmap. Uh, but when you've decided, don't don't dawdle. Uh, communicate it clearly and kind of objectively, uh, and, and move on. And, and that, I think, is so critical because I think the rate of change is accelerating. Uh, and that's why, when um, you asked me at the top, what do I think makes a, a, a good product team, I think um, adaptability and resilience is, is increasingly important.
0: So how do you know when a, a product manager, let's just say, is, is struggling versus you just have a difference of opinion? Because this is, you know, in, in sales in certain disciplines, it's very easy. I can just look at your quota performance, whereas in the more subjective disciplines, in you know, product marketing and product management, how, how do I, if, if, if you think I'm struggling, I'm like, no, Dan, we just disagree. <laughs> like how, how do you sort that out? Yeah,
1: um, Yeah. well, so uh, I think objectively, um, uh, so there's the tautological <laughs> perhaps, um, Response to that, which is you're not getting product releases out. They're not, um, you know, the, the features were not fully mapped out. Um, the product is not being adopted. Um, it's not well understood. Uh, you can often tell because there's dissatisfaction in the team. Um, the developers aren't clear on why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so there's, there's a lot of um, symptoms of that issue that will indicate that a product manager is struggling. And then the, 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 the question is to figure out is that a skills gap is it, um, uh, or, or is it a, um, maybe it's a communications gap or maybe you know, they're, they're not actually going down the path that was agreed on. So it kind of chimes to your point about having a strategy you can actually execute Having one that you can execute is important. And then having one that you do execute, saying, here's what we're going to do. Let's all do this. And then deviating from that kind of almost unconsciously, I've seen that happen too. And that that's a symptom to me that a product manager is struggling.
0: Yeah, I have personally found that teams that deliver against their goals, because you could argue they're just professional sandbaggers. I mean, there is a counter argument to this, but but I've... My belief is the most productive engineers are actually pretty good at estimating how much work something is, and then being able to deliver on it in the time they promised. And, and that the the naive ones tend to bite off more than they can chew, um, and, and they end up ultimately being less productive. So, so because you could argue that ability to forecast work and ability to do work are independent. Um and, and I kind of argue the opposite. Say so my experience, at least, I think they're kind of correlated. The best guys I've worked with, are actually, and gals are good at saying this is going to take eight weeks, and then being able to do it in eight weeks. Curious if you have thoughts on that as kind of a you know no, it's a great scope a, work. Yeah,
1: it's a great indicator. Um, and so that, that on the development side, I've actually I'm thinking of a specific developer who I work with right now. I was talking to a guy on my team the other day, and we were commenting how excellent his forecasting was and how much we value it um uh, it, it's frustrating if you if you get that drift and you fail to get the the deliverable that you want um it's more frustrating if it's if it's continuous um i think the product management correlate of that is um being able to actually fully define a feature uh versus getting halfway through and realizing oh goodness this is actually much bigger than than we thought because i hadn't actually specified it properly uh i think that's Maybe, maybe because it came to me on the fly, but maybe that's a a correlate of that engineering forecasting date. Got it. Um
0: we're going to get into location in a minute. Um, and I think we probably will spend a lot of time in there. So before we jump into location, Thomas, did you have any questions on the prior topics before uh, any additional no, I'm questions? Good. I'm good. You're good? Okay. So let's jump into location then. Um, and by the way, anyone in the audience, as always, feel free to uh, raise your hand. We'd love questions from the audience. Uh, and, re- and just quick room reset, you're in the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with Dave, Coll- Dave Kellogg and Thomas Otter. Our guest is Dan Faulkner of Plana, and we're talking about building great product teams. The room is being recorded. Um, Dan, let's talk about location. I know you've worked in a lot of location models, and for whatever it's worth, I grew up pretty biased towards the small team, brilliant people, same room. <laughs> and And I know it's not the only way that works but 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 uh, I did like that in Fort Worth, even when I was at Salesforce, we were three billion dollars, and that was the prevailing philosophy at the time i mean the, the physical plant was laid out for for stand ups and scrum meetings and uh so I'm just curious you've worked have you always been in a distributed model or did you, like I'd love to hear about your formative experiences <laughs> with with uh, product and engineering, and then kind of some of the models you've worked under and and what you prefer and why so huge question go ahead
1: yeah no i mean so i've, I've bounced around like literally I've, I've lived in lots of different places and um uh had i've had the um small team of brilliant people in the same location um and it's it's fantastic it's not always um it, as a practical matter it's not always achievable um the uh I've also had experience with diverse teams, so d- developers in different locations working on the same product um, or portfolio where different locations work on different products. Um, and I've worked with teams in the U.S., U.K., uh, Germany, India, Brazil, Mexico, um, Belgium, um, all places. Um, I spent a few years in, in Belgium. Uh, and I, I believe, uh, and by the way, of course, with sometimes I've had teams who were part of the company, diver, geographically diverse teams that were part of the company I was in. Nuance was quite a large organization, um, and it had different development centers around the world. Uh, I've also got experience with uh, the outsource model. We actually do a fair amount of outsourced engineering at Planner. Um, and uh, I think... I think geographic diversity has a little bit of a bad rap. Um, it does bring some. It does bring some new challenges, um, new requirements to it that having a great team all in the same room uh, just doesn't have. So it is extra work that definitely comes with an overhead. Um, but if you if you address those and 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 work knowing that there's going to be a little bit of an extra overhead for some individuals in the team and it's especially the leaders of the team um then i think you can actually work very well and of course if you're looking at outsource models or or multi-site models the thing that you're usually factoring in is do i can i get access to talent and can i get access to affordable talent um so so that's usually why people are starting to think about those topics
0: so um, <clears throat> there's, there's a number. First, let's talk about the, the co-location of PM and ENG. So, so let's just say, presumably, if you're going to have multiple geographic centers, presumably they're, they're oriented towards products, correct? Like you're not trying to do anything where one product is spanning multiple dev centers or no? How, how, how distributed is distributed?
1: Um, I think ideally it's, 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 it's an alignment between the products and the dev centers.
0: Got it. Okay, that's what I figured. Talk about co-location of PM and edge. The PMs in the because look, you you can make the argument that the PM should be in the U.S. market because it's the most competitive. The, 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 definitionally, not 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 ego wise, but we have literally the most competitors because <laughs> because people tend to start here. Um, so you want kind of I, I've often likened PM to a giraffe. You want you want the ears and eyes in, in the U.S. in general. Uh, depends on the market specifically, but but and then you have want this long neck back to the dev center, but but that. But it's hard. To me, both answers are wrong in some sense because if the PMs are in the remote ENGE location, then they're not in the market. But if they're in the market, then they're not co-located with ENGE. So, so how do you manage that and what are your views?
1: Yeah, we actually do this. We do this right now. Um, and we have um, product management in the U.S., which is our, our target market. And I think it's, I agree with you. It's critical. I don't see how you, you have to be attuned to the deeply attuned and entrenched in the market. Um, we then have what, you, what some people would call the product owner or sometimes the project manager, but I think it's much more than project management, um, uh, with the dev team. And we, have, we, we go out of our way to hyper-communicate hyper uh, between that product manager who's in the U.S. and the product owner who's with the development team. Uh, And we have a great deal of direct communication with the development team as well. We're still small enough that we can actually communicate with people individually. But the model does scale as long as you're communicating very well with the leaders. And the advent of really high, reliable, high quality video conferencing has made life so much easier in this regard as well.
0: So so at Host Analytics, now now called Plan Full, as opposed to Plan A, uh, mm-hmm. uh, we did uh, our development in Hyderabad, and we had this same split of PM versus PO. but I, I'd love to understand your definitions of the, the PM role versus the PM role, sorry, the PM role and the PO, the product manager versus product owner. Yeah,
1: so the, the product manager is kind of managing the, the backlog, the overall strategy, so that Um, But when I say the backlog, the prioritization of features that surface in the backlog to be, you know, to to fill uh, a sprint. Um, And that person also is obviously looking out kind of in the hub model of a product manager, spending time with sales, with customer support, talks to customers directly, um, and is tasked with really understanding, like, where are we going as a company and what does the product do to, to enable that? Um, the, they will write the product manager will definitely be responsible for writing the epics um, and normally for writing the stories. Those often need to be broken down into subtasks and I think that's where the PO starts to come in is kind of really breaking this down into like bite-sized features that, that are, are tractable and useful for a developer to pick up and work on. And size, um, and so that's one important handoff. Is is uh, that layer of kind of the task definition. Um, the PO also runs the um, the Scrum meetings, um, and you know documents them, keeps things moving, runs the retrospective, kind of runs the the process uh, of the sprint, um, and runs the retrospective, uh, and. Yeah, so that's kind of how we've broken things down. Is that consistent with your view, Day?
0: Yeah, it is quite similar. I think um one of the challenges of that model is if a P if a PO wants to become a PM, uh you have to relocate him. We did a couple times. Um I, I don't know your views on that or if you face that. I'm sure Planet's too too new to have faced that yet, but uh at Nuance, did did you ever they, are they kind of glass ceiling as a PO in a remote location is kind of the question.
1: Uh well yeah, I mean if if, if- I just think the product manager has to be geographically in the market, so yeah, um, yeah. They, they would need to relocate.
0: Yeah, that's what we did. We did, by the way, quite successfully. Um, um, good. The uh, and I guess the other the other way to break that glass ceiling is if the company gets bigger and bigger. You you will have you could potentially have a local PO management structure, right? Um, which maybe cuts to this question. We didn't talk about this in our prep call, but but to what extent do you think kind of product allegiance versus functional allegiance? Like, does it matter who the engineers work for? Do you, do you believe, let's start at the very top. Do you think PM&N should work for the same person? Should there be a VP of product that runs an NGen product? Or, or should they be separate and then going down the line? Like, just for example, at Salesforce, all the people who built the service cloud did not report to me or even my boss. They, they reported... To, to Parker Harris, the co-founder. It was a completely different branch of the organization, but we worked together on product. So, so I'd love to get your view on org structure of, kind of in, in, in corollary to that, functional allegiance versus product allegiance. Like Incredible. if you ask somebody at Salesforce what, where they worked, I think they'd say, I worked on Service Cloud. Not I worked in QA. Not sure, but, but I always like to believe that. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, the size of the company is hugely important, I think, to the, to the answer of that question. Um, so, obviously, when you're a very small company like we are at the moment, uh, it's a single I work product for organization. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's so, so, we are a single product organization and product management and development roll-up to me. Um, the… Uh, at Nuance, and I think at many bigger companies… It's actually a struggle for them as they grow. It was definitely a struggle uh, at Nuance. It couldn't. It, 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 it would struggle to find the right balance of saying what belongs in a business unit, which is defined typically by product allegiance, market market allegiance, which implies a product allegiance, uh, and what belongs as a corporate functional, uh, a corporate function. Um. Uh, I believe I, I. So I've got experience with both it would not be difficult at all to come up with an example where my preference my overall preference wouldn't be right in a specific instance but my general preference is for product allegiance
0: got it yeah mine too <clears throat> um but but too much product allegiance and then you're not sharing functional best practices right so so it's definitely a it's definitely a trade off
1: yeah it's a definite tension we we had a okay. situation uh, nuance where we had like <laughs> And this was, this was exacerbated by uh, a highly acquisitive stra- strategy as well. Um, but, you know, we had like six different reporting and logging capabilities. We had sometimes literally duplicate products that needed to be consolidated. I think it's inevitable if you're an acquisitive company. Obviously, you shouldn't build yourself into that situation. But
0: yeah.
1: if you have high product allegiance, you will build yourself into a little bit of that situation.
0: Agree. And this, this, by the way, for, for that and several other reasons, I'm a huge believer early on in having strong architects, like, like, cause that's, that's what protects you. Well, it protects you from technical debt as well, like doing things right the first time from a architectural perspective. But the other thing it protects you against, if you have powerful architects that won't happen. And if you don't, it will, in my mind that, that, that <laughs> like, um, so and that I, I'm a huge believer in having a head architect all the way back from my, my first days at Ingress, but but at Salesforce as well, I always said the architects had the the off bat phone. There, there were relatively few people who could call Benioff directly. And the architects were one of them, at least my architect was. Um, so he was a very powerful guy. And, and if you know if the sales club was building a rules engine and the service cloud was building a rules engine, he'd say stop. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and if you didn't, uh, it would get escalated pretty fast. Uh, so so I, I love that role um for for both the the carrot and the stick aspect of it
1: yeah i completely agree and you can accrue technical debt at a truly breathtaking rate um if you if you don't do that um and and it's very difficult to do that i'm not i would not claim i've done that perfectly throughout my career and even in a in a small startup organisation um beginning with the architecture requires a lot of discipline and um I, I, I would not say that we do that perfectly because um, we've already had times where we thought, ah, you know, why did we do this? It seems like we've done this one and a half times at least, if not twice.
0: <laughs> so on a joint host analytics, we had uh, six different export to Excel utilities. <laughs> yeah. Just to give an idea of how bad it can get if you're not. And paying how many did you have
2: when you left, Dave? That's yeah.
0: the I think we got down to one. I think. I don't know. You'd have to ask the guys. Uh, but I think we got down to one. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll not eight. Check Okay, off, that's obviously. good. <laughs> we ate when I left? Yeah. yeah. Six when we you arrived, and eight when you had two, you had two more. But they were much better. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Okay. Um, talk about diversity. It's the last topic I wanted to hit on here. Uh, we've talked about kind of geographic diversity. We didn't really talk about gender diversity yet. I'd love to know if you had strategies at Nuance or at Plana on, on trying to build a more diverse organization. Uh, so, talk about some of the more kind of let's just say HRE aspects of diversity, kind of people diversity.
1: Um, yeah, I, I think um, in I, I think it's a it, it's definitely been my experience that. Development teams have been um, male dominated, um, which I don't, obviously, you know, don't don't think is a good thing. Um, And two very different experiences, I think. It it would be good to compare and contrast. Um, uh, At nuance, um, again, as I mentioned, at least during my time there, it was it was a, it really went through this um, acquisition spree, and so you kind of got what you bought, um, and to a large extent in, in that kind of land grab period, which happened sort of in the uh, from about sort of two thousand three through about two thousand eight two thousand nine, was a really intense M and A period. Um, it, it, I don't think very much mind was being paid to. That kind of diversity, uh, or really any kind of diversity at all. Um, by contrast, um, a, a planner, when you get the chance to start with a blank sheet of paper, um, we've been very conscious to um, to focus on diversity uh, to the extent that you know we we will not make uh, certain hiring decisions until we've. Had good candidates from you know, both a variety of backgrounds, a variety of ethnic backgrounds, a variety of gender backgrounds. Um, because you, you know, when you're uh, when you when you've got twenty years of experience, and you in, and in my case, for, for better or worse, have grown up in a male-dominated. Um, you developed a male-dominated network in high tech. Um, it, it cannot it can be very easy for you to find a decent candidate um, who kind of looks and sounds like you. Uh, and so I think it's worth the conscious effort um, to to invest in trying to hire a diverse team because my experience has been that when you do have uh, diversity in your team, culturally, racially, in terms of gender, uh, you, you tend to have more harmonious
0: teams. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, let's see. We've got about five minutes left. If we have any audience questions, please feel free. Thomas, did you have anything else you wanted to hit on?
2: I think it's you know you pointed by the diversity. It's 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 that was an astute one. It's you know if you've built twenty years of 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 network with people similar to you, it is it's very easy just to just you know just to fall back on that. But it's I think it's incumbent of us to make to to make that uh, you know to make that um, that extra that extra effort
0: yeah most of my formative years were in marketing so i didn't have the same in marketing we were for whatever reason much more gender diverse right um and but in product and particularly in engineering yeah it's uh the companies i've worked at in the past have been pretty male-dominated uh and, and I do think the, the easy, basically the answer, one well, of the founders I talked to is exactly what you said, which is it all begins with the pipeline of candidates. Because if if you don't have a diverse pipeline, you're not going to have a diverse hire. <laughs> and it's right. like my mind ultimately puts a lot of pressure on the sourcing function, right, um, to say we need you to go source. So exactly what you said. We need you to go source a diverse pool of candidates and we'll pick the best one, but we we need but we, until you show us a diverse pool, we're not going to pick one. Um, so I think it puts a, a lot of organizational pressure on uh, HR and sourcing and I would encourage startups to staff that because it, you are going to make more work for them, uh, that, that's my view on it I don't know if people have thoughts on that
1: Well, I, I think it also starts I completely agree and I think it and our hope is and, and we've actually seen already a little bit of evidence that it starts um, a virtuous cycle because um, a more, you get a few more people from different backgrounds into your team their networks tend to be more diverse than yours so when you say we have a new role they know a friend and that friend knows a friend and so you start baking diversity into your company network um it's but you've got to got to make the effort at the beginning to to get that going um and i think you don't have to get the the later you leave it it's going to get harder and harder over time um so so that's that's a big and Then problem. people won't want to make join something.
0: either because you have such exactly. an ingenious team. It's a really good point. It's something you need to focus on early. That that had eluded me up until this conversation. Like d- it would be a bad strategy for a startup CEO to say, "Oh, let, we'll be diverse later," right? Because it's just right. going to be harder later. To your point,
2: it's a bit like technical debt. You know, it's it's just, you can you know you can always kick the can down the road, but it catches you up eventually. And and, yeah. and the the decisions you make about your organizational culture, you create, you know, you those things set you up, you know, they're, and they're very hard to, those cultural things are very hard to peel back, um, very hard to peel back later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah later. Fantastic. So, so okay. Dan, I've
2: kind of had one last question, if if I may. It's, it's you know, we, we touched on it earlier, but it's this machine learning and, 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 and product. You know, what's your advice for for, you know, product people who are, you know, starting to get more and more exposed to machine learning. What's your What's your guidance to to product people who maybe don't have a machine learning background who are now you know coming up against machine learning or having to understand machine learning uh, uh, more and more? What's your advice?
1: Um, well, so I guess maybe a couple of things. Um, the first is just to ed- educate yourself around uh, around how the models work. Um, uh, there, are, there are different approaches, right? Um, uh, you're going to get different outcomes from um, uh, different models of classifiers. You'll get different outcomes again if you train neural nets. You'll get different outcomes again if you use GANs. Just learn, like, in plain English, what are those things doing differently and, and understand um, how they would apply to different types of data Um, how the results might be different if you put the same data into those models. Um, Understand, try and learn about the concept of tuning models. I think that's one of the most underserved ones. And try and understand the concept of data sufficiency. So it's kind of like a punch list of things that I think any product person can go and just read. There's some really great high-level stuff online and blogs, uh, newsletters you can sign up to that doesn't require you to have a PhD in AI or in statistics. That's just invaluable. Okay. The second thing I would do is get a data scientist. <laughs> it's, it's a job. Don't don't try and be a data scientist if you don't have a formal background in it. And just because you've got tools that let you um, let you kind of play around with data, that does not make you a data scientist. It's not the tools. It's the understanding of data. Um, that, that you need. And you, they're, they're highly scalable because you've got someone who's just got that um, affinity and, and it's, it's, you know, the good data scientists just feel it. Um, uh, you know, despite being, you know, sorry, in addition to being, um, you know, technically very capable, that there are people who have a real feel for data and you need that knowledge and deep expertise on any ML product that you're going to do. And it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's got 20 years experience. There's so many great, smart graduates coming out of schools at the moment. Um, there's amazing co-op programs. And, and if you find the right person, they, they don't need that much experience. They just need to be focused on data.
0: Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. We're, we're at time. Uh, any quick concluding comment you wanted to share with us before we uh, spin down the room?
1: Uh, no, not for me. It's been a real pleasure, and I appreciate you uh, you both having me on, Dave and Thomas.
0: Oh, it was great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Thomas. Do you have any closing comments? Just the usual. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dan. Great episode. Thank you. And uh, we're going to spin down the room now.